Welcome to Three Little Things, a natural health podcast. We've created this space to help you positively navigate the world of holistic and natural well-being, where each week we will explore something new and dive into a diverse range of holistic health topics from all walks of life. As chiropractors, we are equally passionate about helping educate, share and empower you on your well-being journey. Created with you in mind, Three Little Things aims to bring you digestible topics and applicable tools and strategies to help you grow, thrive and live well. So let's dive in. Welcome back, everyone, to Three Little Things podcast. We're super excited to be filming another episode today. Uh, we have another amazing guest, Matt, who I'll get to in a second. But I guess, yeah, we we love filming these episodes because we really do feel like we're, I guess, creating a resource bank for you guys to go to on all different topics that relate to all aspects of your life. And we've talked about the triad before. And yeah, I guess our podcast is really becoming a resource bank for all different sorts of um, episodes and topics. And today's episode is no different, which we'll get to in a second. But Lily, do you want to talk a little bit about what this podcast is and what we do and why we're here today? Yeah, sure. So this began late last year uh, during our most recent lockdown and I had so much to say and no one to say it to. And I thought, well, who is going to listen? Well, let's just create a platform and just say whatever we want. And really it was born of the desire to help people um, decide how to think and not what to think because there's so much information going back and forth, most of it quite negative. So we began this podcast with the idea of wanting to help people feel a bit better about their lot in life. And because Sarah and I are both health practitioners, um, we began it from a very um, basic level, which was how to stay healthy, how to get and stay healthy. And one of our concepts was a triad of health, which is um, structural, biochemical and mental emotional. We've had so many interesting guests join us over the last two seasons. And I find that as time has gone on, we've had some very interesting feedback, haven't we, Sarah? We have. Yeah, we definitely have. So today is no different. We are going to launch into a rather interesting subject. And when Sarah speaks to our guests, um, you'll know why. Yeah, well, we have Matt with us today, who is a clinical psychologist. So welcome, Matt. We're very excited to have you. Um, I'm going to let Matt introduce himself. But first of all, Matt, how are you today? I'm good. good. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Um, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself um, and why you're here and what we're going to chat about today. Sure. So my name is Matt. Um, full name, Matteo Zicala. <laughs> you can call me Matt. Uh, I'm a clinical psychologist. I've worked with all sorts of patients. Um, I've spent the majority of my time nowadays working with teenagers and their families, um, working with teens and families that really have come to the end of their line, uh, don't have a choice but to come to someone like me. Um, but perhaps more interesting for you guys is that I have a PhD. I spent way too many years at university studying uh, all things evolution, uh, death, love, attachment, and uh, how all of that relates to our conception of mental illness. Awesome. So I just want to uh, read out your thesis title, if, if I may, Matt, yeah, sure. because <laughs> I think it's really interesting. It's called Transdiagnostic Foundations of Clinical Anxiety, Death, Attachment and Evolution. Mm. <laughs> and I, I, it does sound very wordy, however, and very scholarly, but I find I'm feeling a lot in my heart space right now. I feel it's really sitting um, quite deeply in my emotional centres rather than in my head. It's hard summing up an 80,000 word thesis in a title. It's <laughs> yeah. a funny name. But I guess the concept of the title is that there are themes that run across. So there's lots of different types of anxiety. So my thesis was about anxiety specifically, but there are themes that run across all the different types of anxiety. So you've got so social anxiety, you've got panic disorder, uh, you have you know, OCD, although it's not technically in the, the uh, anxiety category in the Bible or the DSM anymore. Uh, but the idea is that there are themes that run across it, that you can study these themes. That they're really interesting themes because they can tell you a lot about a whole range of different disorders. Um, and my thesis was about the evolutionary themes that run across anxiety and thinking about how can we understand anxiety disorders from an evolutionary perspective. Um, and I think there's a lot to learn from an evolutionary perspective, not just about anxiety disorders, but about most, if not all, mental illnesses as well. So let's use that. Can you bring us up to date with what that those words actually mean? Sure. Yeah. So I'm, I'm looking at your page because I often forget the title of my own <laughs> thesis. So the first word is transdiagnostic. The idea that 
you know, it's across diagnoses. We're thinking about things that are across several diagnoses. Uh, what's the next word, Lily? I can't read your hand. Foundations <laughs> of clinical anxiety. Just I can't read it either. I, I do think the word foundation is very important. And I thought about mm. that word for a long time because it's about what's at the core of it. We're not talking about a symptom that cuts across every anxiety disorder. We're really wanting to think about what drives these disorders, what is common amongst them that drives them and, uh, you know, is their foundation as well. And then, again, look at your page, uh, death, death. Uh, Attachment and evolution. Yeah, because death is a very important theme in evolutionary theory in general, as you Mm. can imagine. We've spent uh, millions of years trying to figure out how to avoid death Mm. or how to fend off death for as long as we can. Attachment, I guess we can talk about. Some people might not know what that means, but it's the uh, attachment is the idea of relationships. And then finally, evolution, as in, you know, how, do the, how does death, attachment and clinical anxiety fit from an evolutionary framework? So there's so much going on here, Matt. Um, it almost sounds like the word foundations goes to the words um, root cause, would you mm. say? Yeah. Yeah. And then I want to do a bit of a quantum leap into the word evolution because <laughs> when you first brought that up in um, a few minutes ago, evolutionary psychology, how does that differ from what we understand as being psychology? Well, I guess to start at the beginning, what do you understand as evolution? So if I asked you what's, you know, quickly in a few words, what evolutionary theory is, what do you think you would say? Whoa, Sarah, (laughs) smart person, you. Uh, Oh, gosh. Um, Well, I mean, the first thing that came to my mind was, I guess, it's a progression Mm -hmm. um, is how I kind of, if I had to really simplify it to like a word, that's kind of what I would start with. Yeah. Obviously there's so much more to evolution than just progression, but yeah, it comes from a, a starting point and it progresses or it evolves for lack of better word um, into something else. Mm. Yeah. That's a really good understanding. Good job. Great. You passed Thank the you. test. Really? Do you have yeah. anything to add? You see, because let's put it right out there. I'm 30 years older than you guys. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I guess the word evolution uh, has so many pathways to to say because are we going back into dark ages? Are we coming mm. out of them? Where mm. are we? Are we actually evolving or are we devolving? I guess mm. from a neuroscientific standpoint, from what I do with kids who are less and less uh, dexterous, mm. and those pathways in their brains are becoming less and less defined. I'm wondering whether our parietal lobes are. Um, devolving rather than evolving. So you see, asking me is not a good idea, Matt. (laughs) So I think everyone has their own conception of evolutionary theory. Uh, The most common one being the idea of survival of the fittest. I think survival of the fittest is the the phrase that most people will say if you ask them what is evolutionary theory. Uh, And I think where I'd start is that survival of the fittest wasn't actually a term uh, defined by Darwin. Um, it was made during his time, but he wasn't too fond of it, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason being is that survival of the fittest, it implies that uh, in some ways it implies that there's only uh, physical aspects to evolution, that fittest is kind of a very physical word. Mm. And it also doesn't really capture the whole spectrum of what is adaptive and what isn't adaptive. Uh, Darwin actually wrote books about how evolutionary theory fit with emotions. So he was the first evolutionary psychologist. Mm. Um, But one of the reasons that he didn't like the term survival of the fittest is that uh, there is a, well, in theory at least, you know, how would you prove it? But there is a a psychological element to evolution. There's this idea that not only are biological traits developed over the course of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years and generations uh, that are very adaptive for a species, but there are psychological traits as well. There are traits in terms of how we think, how we feel, what we do, what our motivations are uh, that fit within the the framework of evolution. Interesting, because uh, way back we had a couple of episodes on the brainstem, which was um, the Fs in our lives, like Mm. feed them, fight them, you know, procreate with them. So survival of the fittest tends to actually bring all that to the fore, doesn't it? Because it sounds like the fittest one Mm. fights to get to the top of the pile and eats the most food. Yes, and that was one of the reasons why Darwin wasn't very fond of the term because there are traits that are adaptive that aren't necessarily about how strong you are, how fit you are physically, how much you're willing to fight. There's stuff like cooperation is a very adaptive trait. Uh, Altruism is a very adaptive trait. Mm. Self-sacrifice can be a very adaptive trait. 
Um, for example, there are primate mothers, there are human mothers, but there's also monkey mothers that would be willing to sacrifice their lives if it meant saving the life of their children. There are human mothers out there that would be willing to jump in front of a bus if yeah. it meant that their child was saved. Uh, from an evolutionary perspective, that's actually really adaptive, that your genes will be passed on if you do that, but it isn't quite captured by this physical kind of conception of the strongest and the fittest going out yeah. and becoming the most adaptive. Very interesting. So, so many myths now really need debunking, don't they? Mm, kind yeah. of, yeah. <laughs> and really that, that term, um, survive the fittest, needs to be wrapped up and put away somewhere. Yeah, yes. maybe we can replace the survival of the... The most cooperative, or, <laughs> yeah, or the most adapted. Adapted, yeah. yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. All right. So, in psychology terms, do you want to speak to that, Matt? So, like I mentioned, there are lots of elements of evolutionary theory in which humans are quite different to other species. So, the fundamental trade-off in evolutionary theory is between how long you spend growing versus how much time or how much energy you spend reproducing. Mm. And this is a really important trade-off when it comes to all sorts of organisms, if not all organisms, because for every year that you spend growing, you get a lot of benefits. There's a lot of uh, benefit to spending a long time growing. Every year that you spend growing, you get bigger, you get stronger, you can uh, grow a bigger brain. Mm. Um, you can spend more time forming relationships with those around you. Um, there's all sorts of things. Like you can learn more about the environment. You can learn which fruits are good, which fruits are bad, etc. But for every year you spend growing, there's a cumulative risk that you're going to die because no matter how protected you are, you could die for all sorts of reasons. A tiger might come and snatch you in the middle of the night. Um, <laughs> now a tree might fall on you. It doesn't matter how good you are at surviving. For every year of growing, your risk of dying uh, cumulatively increases. And so for most species, they spend as little time growing as they can because they want to get onto the reproducing. They want to get onto the mating. Uh, they want to get onto the having children as fast as possible mm. because they don't want to die before that happens. If they die before they have a chance to have kids, the, their gene pool uh, mm. disappears. Yeah. It's a very interesting little algorithm then because it's almost a mathematical formula here, it, it isn't is, it? Yes, and yeah. there's lots of papers that look at the mathematical formula. Yeah, form I'm actually looking stories. at a lot of different um, formulae in my head now because I, I know that you did maths at a really high level at school as well. And kind of. Yeah, all right. <laughs> Modesty Arguable. is also adaptive, I suppose. <laughs> so, yeah, it's going to be a very interesting sweet spot, isn't it, as to... Yes. Yeah. But this is how humans are very unique. So humans have uh, what we call a very long life history. So they spend more time growing. They spend more time in childhood than most species. If you look, if you compare humans mm. to uh, our closest relatives, the chimpanzees, even though we spend the same amount of time reproducing, uh, the amount of time we spend growing is almost double. And so we've figured out some sort of way of doing this. And this is a real dilemma if you're a scientist sitting in an armchair thinking, I've got this wonderful formula about uh, the risks associated with growing. Yeah, humans have conferred so many benefits from growing. Like we really do, we create these incredibly rich adults. Mm. <laughs> it's a weird way to put it, but the adults we create, uh, like our brains are enormous. Um, our social relationships are, in, are complex and uh, highly structured in a way uh, and you can only do that if you spend a really long time growing but how did we defend against the risk of dying during that time and so a man a very uh, I think a very intelligent man <laughs> a very intelligent psychologist by the name of John Bowlby came along and said I figured it out he came up with this thing called attachment theory and it's this idea that uh Human babies, human children don't need to figure out how to survive. They don't need to grow up as fast as other animals because we've developed this system of survival by proxy. We've developed this system, this social system, where parents look after their kids mm. so kids don't have to worry about it. They have adults to do it for them because other animals, they do, other animals do have this to an extent, but not to the same extent that humans have. Yeah. And we've almost found the cheat code to get away with creating much richer social systems, much richer brains than other animals have. Yeah, interesting. And the first thing that came to mind then, obviously our listeners know Lily and I are both chiropractors and we treat a lot of paediatrics. 
um, kids have this thing, which we've talked about in previous episodes called primitive reflexes, right? And they're I, how I often explain them to parents are their survival reflexes. Um, yep. And they're, they're there to allow the child to develop and rely on its parents to you know do things. And it's quite often or more often than not, Lily, we're seeing patients or babies come in that have a lot of retained primitive reflexes. So these reflexes aren't integrating. And I can weave that straight back into what you were just saying there, Matt, about like attachment. You know, our kids are both very reliant on our um, adults, but I feel like our adults are also, for lack of a better word, babying our babies a little bit too mm. much and not allowing them to go through that process of developing. And as a um, as a result, some of these primitive reflexes aren't integrating. Mm. But I have a question for you. Sure. <laughs> unless you want to comment on that. No, no, go on. No. Um, this whole idea of we spend a lot of time growing, mm. do you think, and this could be a bit of a weighted question and maybe we'll get to it later, do you think that contributes to why we have such a fear around dying? I, that's a good question. <laughs> I think you could say that. Yeah. I think there are other factors when it comes to humanity around yeah. why we fear dying. I think we have a cognitive capacity that other animals don't, that we have the capacity to really understand that when someone stops moving and they go cold, that they're dead, that mm. they're not around anymore. <laughs> that uh, You know, it's not just something that you found on the ground that, that could that's going to be you one day yeah the other things that humans have that no, no other animal has with very few exceptions the more evidence coming out that a few exceptions have it uh, yeah. like the great apes and the primates um, is the ability to predict the future so very few animals have Ooh. that ability to look into the future and so when you put those two things together, when you put together the capacity to recognise that something is dead and that it's never coming back, and you put that together with the capacity to think about your own future, you've got a problem. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Thing, this is going to happen to me one day. Yeah. Uh, and that's not a very nice thought to have. No, very interesting. That is a clash of realities, isn't it? It is, mm. yeah. And mm. I'd never thought about it like that, you know, yeah. our capacity to think forward as to, yeah, putting yourself into that situation. And also is it sort of um, being human and being very mercenary about it? You know, we've invested so much time and money growing mm. and then suddenly the whole thing goes dead. Mm. <laughs> so what a waste. <laughs> uh, whereas an animal probably doesn't have that cognizance, right? Hmm. And I think we've created these social structures around us that are designed to help us make us feel uh, eternal mm. in some ways, like we're never going to die. Uh, for example, we make podcasts and then we hope that one day when we pass, people will be listening to those podcasts. Yeah, <laughs> that's the only reason why we're doing this, Matt. <laughs> no other. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's so many questions now, so it's, it's mm. going to be hard to sort of um, pinpoint the actual issue. But I, I guess um, it's a sense of loss, isn't it, too, and, and grief. I'm not sure that – does an animal feel that? It's There's – you know, it's a hard question to answer. What do animals feel? Mm. What don't they? Mm. I read a wonderful review the other day about chimpanzees, so, and it really – I do think that they feel that. There's evidence that, for example, um, chimp mothers will carry their dead babies around for weeks yeah. and, and – really it feels like they're mourning yeah. their baby. Uh, and we also see the similar emotional reactions, for example. what would If we were a biologist from an alien planet looking at us and we said, mm. what does grief look like? We would say, well, they go into their room, they don't really talk very much, they you know, sit by themselves and they're not very talkative. We see uh, chimpanzees do that as well when yeah. they've lost somebody that they love as well. Mm, fascinating. And also it's the, um, the length of time people spend grieving and, and also humanity um, regarding loss. Mm. I mean, look how many wars are being fought today based on losses incurred a thousand years ago, let's say. Mm. I mean, you know, most of our conflict these days are not new issues, <laughs> are they? From memory. I don't know. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> That's outside the scope of my expertise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I guess in the last few years, we've actually had a lot of interesting discussion around death, you know, and not allowing people to mm. die. Now, that's always been an interesting concept to me because, you know, as Sarah and I were bantering earlier on, you know, death and taxes, they're always going to happen. Mm. It's almost like a, a Mack truck hit us. Somebody died? What? 
Mm. Did someone actually die? Mm. Uh, yes. So what's all that about? I don't get well, that. I've got some bad news for all of us. It's going <laughs> to happen to you. It's going to happen to me. It's going to happen to everybody listening to this, this podcast. Yeah. 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 Like I said before, I think we spend so much time. I think it's normal to be afraid of dying. Again, mm. if we bring it back to evolution, if we didn't have a healthy fear of death, um, we wouldn't be around today. There, I'm sure there were animals that didn't have a healthy fear of death and they didn't survive for very yeah. long, right? We've spent so much of our time, uh, uh, unfortunately, as humans with these big brains of ours <laughs> that come as a burden sometimes, I think we think about death a lot more than other animals do. We've created so many uh, ways and mechanisms to try and fend off death. I mean, hmm. modern medicine is a testament to how good we are at that sometimes. But unfortunately you can only fend it off for so long it's it's coming for us yeah and there's so much chest beating going on about all that you know i mean you know it because i i'm you know in the age group where people are dying around me and also you know my parents have died and they died i thought at about the right time that people do die you know because being asian people don't live till they're 100 mm -hmm. and i was quite fascinated to hear some of my friends in australia say when their parents died at a certain age um the words they used were um ripped off mm. so i guess to but me does that come down yeah. to more they feel ripped off as as the daughter or the son or the friend of that person dying or, or did the person get ripped off because very often we hear anecdotally to people who work all their lives in a terrible job or just mm. a awful situation retire and then drop dead mm. and mm. often the words used are ripped off now i think in that mm. case it does refer to the person's to the yep. you know dreadful experience of life and then dying yeah mm. there's a lot of talk about the fear of death i like to think actually the thing that people are most afraid of is dying too soon mm. i think there's a difference that yep. i'm not particularly afraid of dying at the age of 110 i'm afraid <laughs> of dying at the age of 35, yeah. you know, uh, I've still got things to do. Yeah. And again, uh, I hate to be a nerd and a scientist and bring no, it back to my it. thesis. Do it. But again, I think that has to do with evolution is that the, we have this fear of dying to, to make sure that we get our evolutionary, our biological imperatives done and dusted before we head off to the great beyond. Yeah. We want to make sure that we have a chance to grow up. We want to make sure that we have kids. We want to make sure that we have, we see our kids have a chance to grow up. And I would say once all of that is done, you'd probably feel a lot better you know, dying. And there's evidence to show that. So uh, actually, if you had to take a guess, what do you think is the group of people that fear death the least? Oh, well, I feel like the obvious answer would be like the elderly, but then I feel like that's too <laughs> obvious and it's a trick question. It is. Oh, it's an okay, obvious cool. answer and it's yeah. right. Yes. But you, you would think a it class. Because isn't aren't you usually afraid of things that you're faced with? Mm. I would be right now if I came down with terminal cancer, I'd be really scared of dying. Yeah. And actually, the evidence shows that people that have terminal illnesses are really scared of dying. They have elevated levels of death anxiety. Yeah. Yet the elderly who are facing death uh, don't have elevated levels of death anxiety and so my theory at least is that elderly people have met their biological imperatives they've reproduced they've had grandkids they've done what they've needed to do in life they're okay mm -hmm. heading off to death it's about the dying too soon That's all right so so those was also very interesting which is um biological imperatives all right mm -hmm. so let's say for instance you were born with a, a gene disorder of which the life expectancy is not 110 mm -hmm. Do you, does your research show that these people actually approach um, the concept of death differently? I don't know. Mm, mm. <laughs> I think I don't want to speak for anybody that has that sort of disorder. I don't yeah. know how they feel. I didn't study them specifically. Yeah. Um, I'm just wondering whether they would be more prepared for it though, because clearly, not that we're going to use, um, you know, Darwin, not at all Darwin, but you know, the survival the fittest mm, thing. You know, mm. I would assume that um, if if I knew I was growing up with some disease that was not going to be um are not going to help me live to 110 hmm. would i be living my best life every day that i have because i know that by 35 maybe you know that's that's my lifespan hmm. so i think having a big brain as a human is a burden but i think it's also a benefit sometimes like we can find ways to accept things that hmm. are really horrible sometimes and I think there probably are people out there who are facing death who haven't met their biological imperatives. If I can use that word, it's a really cruel word. Yeah, it does make sense. Yeah. But they've, you know, our cognitive capacities 
have meant that they can create a life that's really meaningful for them, that they're not just focused on the fact that they might not have kids one day. Yeah, the biological imperative thing is interesting because there's also um, potential of that person, isn't it? The the gene Mm -hmm. potential, you know. I mean, some people just have, uh, are we going to inherit better longevity genes than others or or is that not also researched, I wonder? Yeah, I'm not sure. Mm. Yeah, I think we've had this discussion previously with another person regarding genes and epigenes, haven't Mm. we? Yeah, we have, yes. So before we were talking and you mentioned it a little bit, but you were saying a little bit about this teaches us a lot, you know, evolutionary psychology and these sort of theories teach us a lot. Mm. Yeah, and you were saying a little bit about when we talked about your title, like the fundamentals and stuff, Um, sorry, the foundations of what makes us us really and how we think and how we feel. Sure. Yeah. I'd like to come back to the death though after I tell a story though. So like I said, my man John Bowlby came up with attachment theory, yeah. the idea being that kids survive by by having these parents that look after them. And so I think the first thing that it teaches us is that how fundamentally important the attachment system is, how fundamentally important our social relationships are for us. So I think social relationships are important for a whole range of different species, mm. but for humans in particular, for 12, 13, 14, if not longer years, the way that we've fended off death, the way that we've continued to survive is by investing in our close relationships, is by being loved, is by being cared for, it's like it's by feeling like we belong, mm. is the way that we fended off death. And that to an extent remains pertinent even into adulthood. You think about, you know, there's a stereotype of the hunter-gatherer human tribe uh, out in Africa somewhere. And you think about the fact that humans aren't a particularly physically strong species. I mean, a chimp would tear us apart <laughs> one-on-one. Mm. The way that we've done so well for ourselves is that we've held on to that attachment system that we have when we're a child. We've held on to that emphasis on social relationships as a way to protect ourselves, as a way to get things done. And we've co-opted that into adulthood. So what we did is that we went out and hunted as groups. We gathered as groups. One of us uh, or two of us stayed up at night to make sure that no predators came and stole our babies. And again, most importantly, um, when some of us were out hunting, others were staying back with the tribe. They were looking after the kids. The Mm. grandparents were looking after the kids. They were looking after the elderly. They were looking after the sick. And that created an incredibly successful species, which is what humans are today. So I think the first, if not, you know, I'm very biased, but I think one of the most important things for me that we learn from evolutionary theories as a species, the need to feel loved, the need to love, the need to feel cared for, the need to feel like you belong is one of the fundamental drivers of human action, of mm. human thought, of human emotion, of human behaviour. Wow. So I knew I was going to sit in my heart space today, so yeah. this is um, very poignant. Uh Difficult to go on from that, isn't it? <laughs> I was just going to say, it's not often that we hear Lily being speechless. So. <laughs> <laughs> or, or the word love come so freely from a young person, all right, mm. and, and without any cringe factor. That's what I'm trying to sort of get my head around. No, I'm serious, Matt, because, you know, this is a very tough society, Australia. Mm. Um, it, it is. Isn't it? And in Malaysia, where I come from, people are always loving each other, you know, and love there is is a very... Uh, kooky thing. It, it's it's not. It's. I mean, I find in Australia when you say people say love, it just gets all gushy and mushy, and then probably also sexual. You know, whereas in Malaysia, the um, I just felt that the community had a much stronger fabric, and maybe that's because not just our parents brought us up; we were mm. loved by our community. Mm. Yeah, well, we're getting into a big topic, aren't we? But I do think, you know, one of the other things that evolutionary psychology teaches us, attachment theory teaches us, is that it's not just about your parents. It's about all the adults in your life. It's that we know, I mean, the studies show that, sure, when a baby's first born, they have, they focus in on one caregiver most of the time. Yeah. But the older they get, the broader that spectrum of caregivers becomes. It it turns to dad as well, then it turns to auntie and uncle, then it turns to grandparents. Uh, and then other adults, it turns to teachers. Mm. And then once you hit teenagehood, it starts turning to peers. And that's a whole other story. That's about who can I have sex with and, yeah. <laughs> and mate with and have kids with. Yeah. But we we often have this misconception that 
you know, in our society, as long as parents are looking after their kids, that's enough. And I, I'm, no, I don't want to tell parents it's not enough, but it's it's about the way our society is structured as a whole. Is that there's not that space for grandparents. There's not that space for other adults in a kid's life. It's so nuclear, isn't it, in Australia? Anyway, I mean, I find that in Asia, and um, I'll probably get a whole bunch of people telling me this is wrong. My other Asian counterparts, but they were. When I was a kid, anyway, in Asia over sixty years ago, um, people did live generationally in the same house, mm. and partially that was because of our tribe, but also mainly because of economics. You know, I mean, who is mm. going to have a whole whole five bedroom house themselves? It just doesn't happen. Yeah. Let me tell you another story, oh. another lesson. Yeah, <laughs> good. Because you're touching on it now. It's. Adaptations aren't necessarily always a one-size-fits-all. So you remember that growth-reproduction trade-off I talked about and yeah. uh, that attachment system that's been designed over millions of years. It's not a one-size-fits-all and that is actually quite adaptive for us to have these traits that differ according to what's around us, particularly species like humans that tend to go all over the place. So, for example, if, if my strategy is to... Uh, love my mum under the assumption that she's going to love me back, she's going to raise me, that's going to work for me. But what about the guy next door whose mum died? Mm-hmm. That's not going to work for him. And if he only had one strategy uh, you know, to be raised, to grow without dying, we wouldn't be a particularly successful species. We have ways, there are, there are mechanisms within us, I don't know if that's the right term, <laughs> but there are, evolution has designed or developed mechanisms for us to be able to respond to our environment in uh, the way that is most adaptive, the way that will protect us the best. So if I bring us back to attachment theory, if you're a uh, if you're a kid, if you're a baby and you've just been born and you're born into a really prosperous environment, there's heaps of food, there's lots of people around to look after you, it's just great, it's sunny all day, you're living, I don't know, somewhere really nice, you, can, you have the leisure of taking as much time as you want growing up. You can, there's a lot of benefits to growing up, like I said, so you want to spend as much time growing up as you can. But if you're a baby that's, that's been born somewhere really terrible, somewhere where there's maybe not a lot of food, somewhere where there's heaps of predators, somewhere where the other babies are getting stolen in the middle of the night, somewhere where the caregivers in your tribe are falling ill and they're dying, Um, you want to grow up as fast as you can because you might not be around for very long. It's a much riskier environment. You want to get to the reproduction phase as quickly as possible. (laughs) But babies are pretty stupid. They don't have ways of looking at their environment. I mean, you could probably tell me more, but my understanding is that even uh, when babies are first born, they can barely see past the front of their face, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah, so babies themselves can't figure out what's happening in the environment around them. So they have to have some sort of conduit to be able to send the signal of what's happening. Mm -hmm. And so this is the wonder of attachment theory. This is the wonder of of Bowlby's and Ainsworth's uh, theory of attachment, that the messages that babies, the messages that kids are getting from their parents are telling them what their environment is like and is dictating what strategy they should take in terms of how they grow up and when they grow up, how they act when they grow up as well. So a lot of people probably heard the term insecure attachment, the idea being that babies that, or, or children, I shouldn't just refer to babies, it's for children of all ages really, is that if their parents haven't been responsive, if their parents haven't been as sensitive as they could be, if their parents are really preoccupied, maybe you know from an evolutionary perspective, maybe they're really preoccupied with getting enough food just to last another day. Even in our own society, a lot of parents are just preoccupied with paying the rent and getting yeah. enough food. If their parents are really stressed, it's sending the signal, your environment is not great, you need to grow up as fast as possible. So they develop what we call an insecure attachment. And it's really interesting because all the evidence shows that if you, you can look at data from our own society and even though you'd say well things are pretty good in our society why would you need to grow up faster the data shows that these evolutionary mechanisms are still in play so kids that have insecure attachments kids that grow up in impoverished environments that have lower socioeconomic uh, come from lower socioeconomic status suburbs they reproduce faster they have uh, increased pregnancy rates 
They have increased sociosexual uh, risk-taking behaviours. They have riskier sociosexual behaviours as well. And it comes out in our biology as well is that they hit puberty earlier as well. So, uh, you know, for example, girls have their first period earlier mm. if they simply just happen to come from an area that has a lower socioeconomic uh, status, mm. I guess. And then um, clinical anxiety is one of those um, things that you would see a lot in practice. Yeah, are, you, are you asking kind of what's the relationship with what I just said in anxiety? Yeah, well, I guess that's what it's sort of um, something to head towards, right? Sort of yeah. A maladaptive um, situation. Yes, so exactly. So what I am heading towards, and I guess that was what I've spent so many years studying, is this idea that mental illness at least can be seen. I don't want to say it's not an illness per se. I think there are elements of mental illness that are pathological and everybody's different, everybody's illness is different. But a lot of what we describe as mental illness can be uh, viewed as an adaptive response to one's environment. And so I think, I, I mean, I can even touch on, I really love that uh, episode you did with Jules Preston. And mm. she talked about what are the functions of uh, y- y- your symptoms? What are the functions of your mental illness when you're later? A lot of it is, for example, to protect you from what happened to you when you were a kid. Yeah. If you grew up really scared of adults, maybe it's because something really bad happened to you when you were a kid. If you grow up and you're really scared of your teacher, maybe it was because your mum was really critical and you found that when you confronted your mum, she didn't care or she withdrew her care for a couple of hours. So you're really scared of confronting your teacher in the same way. And I think a similar concept applies to a whole range of mental illnesses that we can think about what are our symptoms trying to tell us? What are they telling us about an environment that's wrong? Maybe it's a, it's something about our childhood environment that's wrong. Maybe that thing's not around anymore. Or maybe it is still around anymore and it's leading us to feel really bad because ultimately the reason we feel bad is to drive us to do something differently. Okay, so then to um, backtrack to the story, which is really um, you described a situation where kids didn't have enough to eat and there weren't, mm. there weren't enough parents. You know, so there are quite a few outliers to that discussion because Mm -hmm. we live in a kind of very middle class society Mm -hmm. and the rate of those situations, uh, I mean, no one's starving from our area. I'm just going to make a blanket statement there and and be yelled down later on. And (laughs) most kids that we know have clothing and a safe house and generally speaking, two parents. Mm -hmm. So what's their excuse? (laughs) <laughs> Sorry. No, no, no. I don't mean to say it like that. But what no, I'm trying to say is that is this a counter to your other description? It's not necessarily. It's a really good question. And I think that comes down to, you know, society and cultures told us that the things that the kids grow up in, in an upper class background are good for them. And is that necessarily true? So, for example, I would argue, I'm sure there's heaps of kids that, that uh, grow up in an upper class background that have really good lives and they maybe feel anxious about things that are normal and that's okay but there's lots to grow up with really severe anxiety really really severe depression all sorts of mental illness Uh, and one example i can think of is for example sure your family might have been really rich maybe you had heaps of food maybe you had clothes maybe you had the shiniest toys but did your dad and mum have to work 14 hours a day to get there and so did you not have that connection and care that's so important biologically for humans Um, or maybe mum and dad did only work eight hours a day, but their job was so stressful, they came home and they could not do anything more than sit in front of the TV because they were exhausted. And I mean, I can't blame them. I do the same thing all the time. But these processes have been designed during our evolutionary history. They were designed 30,000, 50,000 years ago when it was about how much time mum and dad spent with us. They weren't designed 100 years ago when, you know, mum and dad maybe doesn't spend as much time with us, but... I've got food, so I'm fine, and you know I, I live in a nice, fancy house or something like that. I wonder whether it's a very modern phenomenon because once again, you know, if you have to compare East versus West or, or um, a less um, or second world country or a third world country to the mm. first world, mm. uh, there was probably a lot more trust in our neighbourhood or our community. Mm. You know, so so nearly everybody in my little village were auntie, someone, uncle, someone, mm. not biologically you know, whoever they were. And they were also equally allowed to um, feed us, um, nurture us, but also allowed to um, smack us or discipline us. So, but strangely enough, we all felt really safe and, and we all thought it was very funny, you know, to be smacked by someone else's mother. But these days, go get sued. Uh, so I wonder whether the word trust comes into it. We just don't seem to uh, have enough people 
on that boat with us that we can sail forwards with. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think there there are aspects of our. I mean, we can speak to. I can speak to Western society at least. I can't really yeah. speak to other societies, but there's aspects of our societies that's taken that away from us, and it's really sad. And I think there's all sorts of aspects. Like the, the example you raise, I think a great example, Lily, that teachers I think would have played a much more caregiving role even only 100 or 200 years ago. They would have been much more involved in the disciplining of a child, mm. much more involved in the caregiving for a child. Uh, but we've created these structures called lawyers and courts. <laughs> and so no teacher is going to touch a child anymore because if they did that, they're going to get sued. Right. So then I was wondering about Bobby and Ainsworth studies. Uh, did they do their work with the West, so-called West, I mean, yeah. in this society? or did they I can't, look I can't remember quite. I do know that Bowlby initially developed these series when he was working with really impoverished kids. I'm pretty sure he was working with uh, foster children at the time. In Western society? I think so. Mm. Uh, I, I do know he travelled. I can't remember exactly where. Right, right. <laughs> but I should say that out of all the psychological theories out there, there's a huge criticism of modern psychology is that our theories do not, uh, cut across cultures and attachment theory is the one that has the most cross-cultural evidence mm-hmm. is that you can take this to China, you can take this to Africa, you can take this to the Middle East and you see very similar patterns, not exactly the same, but you're seeing very similar patterns of relating. Mm. So we were just out in the Northern Territory and we spent a lot of time with um, a local guide who was telling us about the Indigenous culture there. So I'm just wondering whether this theory also sits culturally there or not. I think this is why I love evolutionary theory. In theory, it's for every single human yeah, out there. We okay. all came from the same animal mm. at some point. I mean, you might be able to make an argument that some uh, groups of humans may be separated slightly earlier or slightly later, uh, but I really don't think it makes much of a difference that this theory applies to all of us. Mm. Yeah, so we all need to be loved. And yes. really, <laughs> um, yes, and, and I think, well... It just sounds like um, in Western theory, the love has to come from that immediate mum and dad network. And then gradually, you know, grandma, grandpa, and as you say, um, social peers and so on. But I wonder whether we can start from an evolutionary perspective, (laughs) going backwards. That's for me about devolving. So once again, in Asia, we had so many people who we went to as caregivers. Yeah. And we didn't differentiate between them. You know, as long as they were going to be good to us, we, we, we went there. Of course, we loved our parents the best, but it's a different kind of um, setup to the, the West, I think. I have a feeling. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I guess we had so-called servants, but they were more or less na- nannies and girls from the local village who had to have a job. So they just came to the cities and stayed with the families yeah. who had an extra bedroom that they could sleep in, you know. There are so many ways that at least our modern Western society is so unfortunately different to the environment of our evolutionary design, I guess. So like you're saying, there aren't those adult caregivers around. It's not just about adult caregivers. I mean, you you think about a kid growing up in a small tribe. There were kids all sorts of ages. You'd have 14-year-olds looking after three-year-olds. You'd have you know, 20-year-olds looking after 15-year-olds, yeah. you know, and that's a really important process as well. But compare that to what we do with kids now. We stick them in a school. Yeah. They only interact with kids that, that are the exact same age as them. They have 30 of them in the class and they are asked to compete on every single level. Yes. They have to compete socially. They have to compete academically. It's very unfortunate. Yeah, that competition, yeah, that's that was another previous episode too regarding competition, wasn't it, Sarah, with uh, Michelle? But, you know, the institution thing that you just touched on, that always has interested me because, once again, you know, I'm looking at Asia through rose-coloured glasses, obviously, because mm. um, I remember when I was young, uh, putting your old person into an institution was kind of weird. It was either for the very, very, very rich because yeah. they were like, you know, resorts or they were for the very poor. Mm. But we wouldn't put our old people into... Yeah. Um, an institution. Um, yes, we've geez. lost so much <laughs> in gaining so well, much. Well, your, your nonna, for instance, who you love dearly and who loves you dearly, mm. wh- what does she think about? I mean, how old is she, by the <laughs> way, Matt? My nonna is uh, both my nonni, I should say. Mm. Both are Maria. <laughs> uh. 
very stubborn old lady, so uh-huh. she's good at institutions, but you can't blame them. But, uh, you know, I think I've been very fortunate to be raised in a very family-oriented mm. family on yep. both sides of my family. Mm. Um, but How old are your Marias? <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble now. I went to one of their birthdays last weekend. Right. <laughs> I think one's 89, the other's 86. <gasps> Ooh. But I think, it, like, isn't it so cruel that as a species we have such a capacity to look after our elderly yeah. and they end up in a nursing home mm. with a whole bunch of other elderly, yeah. with one nurse per five people or something yeah. like that. And no one's to blame for that. I mean, my family's done similar things, but... If we're just in this situation where we don't have the time, we're all forced to work so much to earn enough money to afford rent. You know, you talked about the fact that we all have food, we all have a uh, roof over our heads, but how much have we had to sacrifice Mm. to be able to get that food and get that roof over our heads? So that circular discussion, once again, you know, that's why when you asked me about evolution and what I thought about it, and I was thinking, are we actually evolving or are we devolving? Because (laughs) you know what I'm trying to say now, you know, that um, I wonder whether we have to take a few steps backwards because going forwards, the rate that we're going forwards, we're leaving people behind who Mm. we deeply care for, you know? I mean, take my kids, for instance, I I tried putting them into um, childcare and not that I'm, maybe they would have done better had they been in childcare. Sorry, kids. But um, um, I can remember going to pick up Jasper from a childcare that was really expensive, you know, super high end. And when I went there, I think it was about um, 12 months at the time, he was in a swing, a, a swing fast asleep. Mm. And I said, oh, okay. Um, and they said he just would stop crying. And the only way to stop him crying was to swing him. And we dared not stop swinging him because when it stopped, he'd woke up, he'd cry. And that was probably the last time I ever put him, the first and last time I put him into childcare because it didn't sit with me, but mm. maybe, maybe I should have persisted. I'm not sure. Mm. Yeah. I, I don't think there is ever any going backwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The passage of time is impossible, but a better future is possible. Mm. Yeah. Better networks, maybe. Mm. Better society better economic structures. Mm. Um, And then so it does relate to dying, doesn't it, Matt? Because it sounds like if we live that amazingly well-loved life, Mm. maybe not at 110, you know, maybe at 65, you know, like if if I have felt fully loved, Mm. you know, and and my relationships are uh, sound, you know, and, and let's say I had a terminal diagnosis of something or other, um, would I actually be quite at peace with, with dying? Yeah, like I think it, it really fits with us, you know, as three humans sitting around a table. It fits with our cognitive evaluation of dying. Like we want to live a full life. And I, I don't know about you guys, but I feel like if I came to the end of my life and I really felt like I had mm. done everything that I came to do, yeah, um, I'd loved everyone that I, I wanted to love and been loved by those same people, mm. I think I'd be happy heading mm. off. Mm. Uh, but I also think, you know, I want to emphasize again, coming back to the science of it, that it really fits with the biological aspect of it as well. The importance of love for fending off a fear of death. Think from the very beginning of our lives, the way that we fended off death was by feeling loved, by feeling loved by our mothers, by our fathers, by the people around us. And I think that lasts to the very end of our death as well. Mm. The Freudians were very astute as <laughs> he's Sarah smoking. Freud is a very controversial topic, but they were very astute in that they once said that, uh, not once said, but their theory was that a fear of dying was really about a fear of separation and vice versa, that a fear of separation in kids was about a fear of dying. And yeah. it makes sense because if you were separated from your mum when you were five years old in a tribe somewhere, you would die. You, you had no chance. Yeah. I'd encourage everyone to go and read um, one of my favourite books of all time, Jane Goodall's The Chimpanzees of Gombe. Oh, yes. Gombe. I yeah. don't know if it's a Gombe right. It's such a wonderful book and you get such an insight into the early years of humanity, I think. But one of the things that I took away from it, unfortunately, is that she records the infants whose mothers did either abandon them or whose mothers unfortunately died of illness or something. Yeah. And all of those infants died. You did uh. not have a chance if your mother died. And that went into adulthood as well. The, the chimps that were ostracised from their social group they couldn't fend for themselves. Yeah. There's a story in there about one of the chimps who was the alpha male. He got uh, you know, taken over by another alpha male. He got kicked out of the tribe. He lasted a couple of weeks, I believe, mm. and he just couldn't do it. And so he just ended up passing on by oh. himself. 
Wow. It's quite profound when you think of it, mm. like when you think about it like that. So, so we have quite a variety of ages in our audience, don't we, Sarah? Yes, we do. In I'm answers, just yeah. wondering, like, say, from a young person perspective, what what would you like to hear from or ask Matt? <laughs> um, all of the above, everything we've just spoken about. Yeah. I think one thing that, um, and this, again, is taking us a little bit away from the death, so I, if you want to bring it back to that, please do. Um, but I think, obviously, mental illness is a very profound thing, all mm. these anxiety conditions. It's very, pro- like, you know, every second person has had an experience with it, whether it's themselves or someone that they know dearly. Yeah. Um, and do you think this whole idea of, you know, we have such a good life and we have access to so much amazing stuff like the food on the table and the income and all that kind of stuff. Do you think one of those consequences is the stress and the pressure of that environment is creating or is contributing to some of these? Yeah. Yeah. I think, do we have such a good life? I mean, our bodies are are shouting at us. They're saying you need to do something differently. I mean, we have waves of people with depression, with anxiety, Depression and anxiety is trying to tell us a message. That's the whole point of, of, you know, this type of research is that mental illness comes with a message. It's saying that there's something wrong with your environment yeah. and something needs to change. And so I would I would pose that to you. Do we have such good lives now if every second one of us is crippled with anxiety? Yeah, <laughs> I would 100% agree with you. But, yeah, I um, I think it's the same with, you know, Lily and I would see it is people coming into the practice in pain. Pain is a message mm. from the body to do something differently, to yes. change what you're doing or to, you know, um, yeah, so I, I 100% agree with that. I, mm. I don't think we quite yet as a society, you could probably touch on this more, but have have got to that point or have done a very good job of kind of educating and voicing that idea of, you know, we, we live this highlight reel and mm. social media has a part to play and that's just one component um, that we live this good life and inverted commas. Um, but, yeah, I think that question stands. Do we actually, mm. you know? Yeah, and, I, and, you know, I'd come back to as well, it's not just about the message that our our psychological symptoms are telling us, right? Mm. It's about the function that they're desperately trying to serve as well. Yeah, And they might not be doing a very good job because we live in this capitalist society and, and we don't live in hunter-gatherer tribes in, you know, south of Africa or something. But uh, we can think about a lot of different mental illnesses and think about what are they trying to do. It's it's not just sending us a message, but they're trying to push us towards something better. Yeah. If you think about anxiety, it's trying to say there are situations that are really dangerous for some reason. I want to get out of there. Mm. If you think about depression, again, a wonderful book by, by uh, again, I don't want to mispronounce it, Johan Hardy called Lost Connections. And it's a really wonderful book where he describes all the ways that depression is really just a message telling us that we don't have enough connection in our lives. We don't have enough. Uh, we don't we don't foster our relationships enough. And that depression is a way to try and get more connections. Mm. You think about a little kid. If a little kid was really sad, they were sitting in their room, they weren't talking, what would the mum do? The mum would come into the room and say, oh, you're so sad, come on, let's go do something, I'm so sorry, why don't we talk about it? Yeah, It's the same thing in adulthoods, that we have these adults, they're really depressed, they can't do much, and if they were in a tribe 50,000 years ago, the other people in the tribe would have gone off their asses and would have gone, let's go help that guy, he's yeah. really sad, there must be something wrong, let's go involve him in our dance that we're doing, let's go hunting with him, yeah. let's talk to him about how he's feeling, maybe the girl in the tribe rejected him, let's go yeah. try and console him or something. <laughs> and instead we we come to today where they say, uh, go see a therapist, go take yeah. some medication, yeah. go back to work, you'll be yeah. fine. All right, so we use the word homeostasis a lot when we first mm. began a podcast, and mm. I think you're homo- homeostatically talking about um, our mental, spiritual, heart state, right? Whereas we are dealing it with um, more biomechanical and neurological, neurological. which yeah. is all the same thing in the end because it, they're all lost connections. Yeah, yep. um, and we were wanting to make these things magazine words, and it looks like they are coming to be. So the whole polyvagal theory and all that, but I want you to sort of cast your mind back in history, not that you were alive then, but at what point did we start leaving people behind? Mm. That's a good question. <laughs> good luck, Matt. I mean, you know. Uh, I feel like I'm Descartes, <laughs> you know, I'm Socrates. Uh, or just Sartre, to, you know. Look, uh, I've got my own opinion of this. I think a lot of people would disagree. Uh, you know, there are good arguments to be made about, you know, the – burdens that came with the introduction of agriculture because it meant that we couldn't move around anymore. We had to stay in one place. And when you stay in one place, you do lose that sense Mm. of free-flowing connection. 
there's arguments as well to be made about the industrial revolution as well and i think Agree. there's very strong arguments to be made about the role of capitalism as well is that yeah. even peasant farmers i think had things in some ways i think in some ways very bad <laughs> yeah. but in other ways they had things a lot better than we do in terms of their mental health yeah. they weren't working as long as we do they were working about half the amount of hours that we were they got more holidays than we do. I don't know if you know that, but peasant farmers in the Middle Ages took more holidays than we do as capitalist worker bees. Uh, wow. And they worked on the farm with their family. They spent all day with their family. With their people that they, they love, yeah. Yeah, like they went and had lunch back in the house with their grandma, you know. There was that sense of connection. Yeah. And I think that capitalism has driven us towards being alienated from one another. It stuck us in our little silos, in our little uh, cubicles where we go look at Excel spreadsheets all day. <laughs> and also the desire to be to suck as much productivity out of us as possible has meant that we are working longer hours than any human in modern history mm. as well. And so I'm, I'm glad you said it. I didn't have to say that, so <laughs> thank you. Do you think that's taking us away from the whole, when we were talking before about those biological imperatives, like do you think yeah. that, yeah, is taking us away again from that and maybe that's contributing to, again, our fear of death is because we, yes. yeah. Uh, I think the incentive structure has totally been reversed. Yeah. Like the incentive structure isn't, isn't any longer about uh, loving people. It's not even about the simple stuff like getting food mm. and you know, you would have been rewarded in your tribe if you were somebody that spent a lot of time with other people looking after them. You would have been rewarded if you were sure if you were a really good hunter, but you would have only been rewarded if you were a really good hunter and you shared the spoils yes. that you got as well. So it's a matter what? of volume in the end, really, isn't it? Because it, you know, it sounds like there is a greed factor here. You know, when mm. is when is enough enough? Because mm. to me, all those pursuits are necessary. You have to pursue, you know, food, water, shelter, et cetera, et cetera, all the whole Maslow hierarchy of needs. But then there has to be a stop button. Yes. So enough pursuing already. <laughs> Start sharing. So can any of this be rewound? Again, I don't think there's any going back. There's no. only moving forward. Going forward, I, I yeah. Think but we can learn, right? We can learn, mm. exactly. Yeah. We learn from the history from our history. Uh, I think we need to rethink what our economic structures look like, what our social structures look like. Um, but again, it's I, I think it is our job as individuals to be thinking about that, to be acting about that. But yeah. we should be demanding more of the people who are in power to be thinking about that as well. Yeah, I think the whole discussion today has been very interesting because we've mm. begun and and finish with the whole idea of dying, you know, <laughs> and everything in between, haven't we? Is there anything else that you feel like we haven't touched on yet, Matt, that you're <laughs> eager to get your hands into? I feel like we've covered everything. You've covered death. And maybe yeah. we'll, we'll get you back one day, you know, soon, Matt, because I wouldn't mind hearing attachment theory um, in, you know, in actual fact. Like how does mm. one – because there's so many young parents in the practice, Sarah. Yes. And yeah. – I'm not sure what books they've read, but sometimes I think to myself, oh, I think a little bit of healthy neglect might be good here, actually. <laughs> you know, it's kind of, do you know what I'm saying? So, yes. I mean, rather than attachment theory, it's almost over-attachment at yes. some point. Yeah. So so at some, you know, date in the near future, perhaps mm. we can I'd be happy to. have you. That'd yeah, be that'd be so useful, Matt, because yeah. I don't want to put anyone down here, but there's an app on the phone at the moment. <laughs> That so day much. by day gives a new mother or father what to expect of that newborn child. And it is and mega it's precise, Matt. stressful. It's like they will sleep for 43 minutes yeah, today and that is it. Mega stressful. Um, and we can wind all of that back to that stress <laughs> and that pressure on that child to then sleep oh, for 43, yes. you know, for and the desired leap. Logging thing. it and charting it and then sharing it with their friends. Yeah, yeah. But that's, that's going to affect. Can you stop now, please? Exactly what we were just talking about. It's going to affect how they grow. Matt's mental health tip of the day, don't download that app if you're a new Great. parent. <laughs> we won't mention the app. Don't yeah. want to be in trouble. I love that tip. Matt's mental health tips. I think we could make that a segment. Don't you think? Okay. I don't have many, unfortunately. <laughs> I like that. Well, Matt, you had three little things to leave us with. Do you remember what they are? I will. <laughs> I can remember. I'll, I'll ask you if I need <laughs> So I think number one, is and I again I'm biased, but I think it's one of the most interesting facts about the theory of evolution about humanity is how fundamental the need to be loved, the need mm. to be cared for, the need to belong, the need to love and to care for people is for humans, and how crucial that is for us to feel good about ourselves. Number two was 
I'd like your listeners to go away and think about you know, whether you have a mental illness or not, what mental illness is trying to tell us, what it's saying to us, please change something. Can you do something differently? Can we change something about your environment? And number three is thinking about mental illness, I think, from a broader social, political, economic perspective. Mm. I think the theory tells, the biological theory tells us that, you know, if I'm right, that mental illness is an adaptive response to your environment and therefore we need to change the environment. Therapy helps, medication helps. They're really great and they really do change some people's lives. Mm. But if we want to respond to the epidemic of mental illness that's ripping through our societies across the Western world, we need to be thinking about what is it about the environment that we have as humans that just isn't working for us. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you, Matt. I think that was, Beautiful. I mean, I, I loved that discussion mm. and I know our listeners will as well, but um, thank you so much for coming and giving us your time um, and sharing that with us. And I know there's probably a thousand more thoughts running through your head <laughs> of things that we could dive into and um, read about, um, talk about. And your thesis is just, you know, an example of that. How many pages right. is it? What, 341 something pages? <laughs> oh, yeah, like it. we could sit here for days and days and days and go through that. No, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, thank you so much, Matt. A quick disclaimer, these episodes are not intended to replace help, treatment or advice from your healthcare professionals. The information in today's podcast is purely for educational purposes and is not designed to diagnose or treat any conditions. This is just a friendly reminder that we do not know you or your child or those around you and therefore do not know your specific needs. Please seek guidance from your healthcare professionals surrounding your concerns.